a 200 point plus game in an NBA All-Star game and that was by one team what's next a player with that many points a disaster of an All-Star weekend as the association has to go back to the drawing board after this debacle of the past couple of days the Islanders let a big win slip away outdoors at MetLife yesterday as yours truly was in the building I'm still sick over it Purdue is the latest top team in college basketball to take an L, and St. John's Rick Pitino has had enough with his red storm. Hideki Matsuyama wins the Genesis Invitational after Tiger withdraws, and Jordan Spieth did what? It's time to get on my Mets soapbox as Pete Alonso wants to stay a Met, but do the Mets want Alonso? I'll have all the above and much more as I get into all that's happening in the sports universe. It's all coming up, but first, this message. JReels here to spend a brief moment and share a friendly reminder to please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on whichever platform you listen to on the regular. Just so we can increase the visibility of the JReels podcast to those who aren't familiar with it. Leave plenty of stars, write a favorable review. It will go a long way for the curious listener looking to hop on board to get a dose of entertaining and passionate sports talk. For the visually inclined, please subscribe to my YouTube channel at JReels as I post daily shorts and weekly vlogs, not only delving into the world of sports, but follow me on my journey to take the podcast and channel to new heights as I provide an in-depth behind-the-scenes look at what it takes for yours truly to produce content on a day-in, day-out, week-in, week-out basis. It goes without saying how much I truly appreciate all of your support. And without further ado, the J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, Michael people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. It's another holiday Monday as I'll get into anything and everything that the sports universe has provided over the past few days as this is the J Reels podcast with your host J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard, and for those who've been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back, and as I mentioned, we now get into the sports dead zone as we're eight days removed from the NFL season, and even though we got some things cooking on the sports stove, although it may not be what we've been experiencing over the last, what, five and a half months when it comes to the National Football League, but... I promise you, this next hour will be very intriguing, very fascinating, and also enticing to tickle your ears with a lot of sports talk and a lot to get into. And the first thing that I have to unpack here is if you watched anything that took place in Indianapolis over the weekend, whether that be Saturday night or especially last night, then you're a better person than me because... What the NBA offered to its fans over this 48-hour time frame was an absolute abomination. That's all 
I can even put it into words. That is the underlined abomination, the best way to describe what happened there at NBA All-Star Weekend in Indy. Because if you go back to Saturday night, and I'll start there, where the skills competition, where I get it, it can be hot and cold, and Damian Lillard was your winner of the three-point contest. I couldn't even tell you who won the skills competition. I know you had Steph Curry going up against Sabrina Ionescu in the three-point contest, which I believe Curry won, but that's how much I followed it. But when I found out that the slam dunk competition, and kudos to Jalen Brown, not because he's a Boston Celtic, a guy that I root for on my team, but for a star player and an all-star to be a participant in a slam dunk competition where we could talk about over the last at least half decade, even half dozen decade of guys that you wouldn't name if you saw them in a lineup. That if they fell on top of you with their jersey and their name on the back, you still couldn't figure out who this person is. And that's no offense to the participants over that time span where they've gone in and tried to make a name for themselves and either have come up short or they've made a name. And in this case, we have to go to a guy named Mac McClung. And if you're wondering who he is, yes, he is now a back-to-back slam dunk champion. But if you're wondering what team he plays for in the NBA, think about it. He's not even in the NBA. So that's problem number one. He's a guy that played for the Sixers last year and I believe had a handful of games, only played in four games, and I read the stat that he is the only slam dunk champion that has less than 10 games on his NBA resume, and for him to, I get it, he's there to defend his title, but he plays for the Orlando Magic G League team. Think about that. What is it, the Osceola Magic in the G League? And for him to have the dunk over Shaq, which I did see, very impressive. We know how big Shaq is. And McClung, who, going back to his high school days, was a phenomenon when it comes to dunking and being a, I don't want to say master of the slam dunk, but with him now winning the title back-to-back years, what's going to happen? Is he going to be in Europe next year and then he's going to fly into America to participate in the slam dunk competition to be the first three-time three-peat of a slam dunk champion when it comes to All-Star Weekend? And no offense to Mac McClung. He was a guy I rooted for at Georgetown before he left for Texas Tech. And this was way before that the NILs and even the transfer portal became in vogue. But for McClung to win the competition, and kudos to him, I understand I'm throwing ice-cold water on him, but it's the NBA overall. And I guess they had to welcome him back considering he wanted to defend his title. And for Jalen Brown to at least be a star name, I couldn't even tell you who the other participants are. And there are usually four participants where yesteryear, I believe you had his minimum, you had about six. And I get it, they tried to tweak it over the years and try not to get crazy with the, if you miss the one dunk, they go back and dunk 15 times before they, I mean, it's just been a flat out disaster. But that was one problem I had and not knowing that McClung was going to be in this competition, but then he won again, and to think that he's not even in the league. So that, I have a major problem with that. And then do we really need to get to last night that I have to spend wasted breath on this? When I saw the final score, I almost fell out of my chair. I didn't watch one second of it. I did see the highlights. I know Damian Lillard was shooting threes from Bloomington and making them. And impressive as we've seen... Dame Lillard, whether in all-star competition, in the three-point competition, or in regular game competition, he can make it from anywhere. He has that Steph Curry range. 
as you saw there last night. But for Carl Anthony Towns in the West to score 50 points, and I believe he was, what, 23 for 36, and then on top of that, to have the East score 211 points, when I saw that score, I was flabbergasted. 397 points total in the game, 211 to 186. You can't make it up. To where even Adam Silver in the post game said, your Eastern Conference winners scoring 200 points. What more can I say? That was pretty much his tact afterwards when I'm sure he spit up as well as the powers that be in the NBA suits spit up their Stella Artois, their kale salads, and their shrimp cocktail in the process just to know that you could have had me out there playing in this all-star game and I probably would have scored 25 points because they play zero defense. And the players have admitted they don't want to hurt themselves. They don't want to turn an ankle. They don't want to come down hard on a dunk or take a charge or anything like that. (laughs) Take a charge in an all-star game? How preposterous. Because it is literally a five-lane highway to the basket where there's no cars, no traffic on any of those lanes. And again, I understand it's an exhibition. This is for the fans. They're going to showboat. They're going to go behind the back. They're going to go off the backboard. They're going to spike the ball. LeBron with the alley-oop slam. I understand. But every trip down the court has to be this way. How they change it, I don't know. The genie's out of the bottle. You can't put it back in. And kudos to Stefan Marbury if you haven't checked his Instagram account because he put up the All-Star game, I believe it was in D.C. 2001, where that was competitive to the very end. And I get it. That was what? Now, 23 years ago when you think about it. And we could talk about it. It's a different set of encyclopedias with the player's mindset and the psyche, etc. But there was some defense. There was some shot making. There was back and forth. But again, that was a generation ago. And I mentioned Stephon Marbury as if he was in the league just 5, 10, 11 years ago. This is now two decades plus. And he brought it up and kudos to him and he's absolutely right. But in this day and age, forget about it. That ship is done sailed. The NBA, if they're going to really have this to be a celebration of its players and the skills competition, especially with the dunk, they have to do something better. And think about this. LeBron James has never even participated in a slam dunk competition. Where in the past, Julius Irving, Michael Jordan, Vince Carter, we can go through the laundry list of players who were Hall of Fame or Immortal players that were in this competition. And LeBron, for whatever the reason, even going back to the Halcyon days of his career, whether it was the early days of Cleveland, the highlight of the four-year tenure in Miami, and even right after in Cleveland, but uh, never participated in it. So I believe like a lot of the other superstars in the league, they feel the same way. And maybe LeBron's gotten their ears that, ah, you don't need to do that. You're just going to waste your energy time. Who knows? I'm not saying that's the case, and I'm sure that's far from the case, but why aren't any of the stars of the game taking a shot at trying to win a slam dunk competition? At the end of the day, I get it. It means nothing. But at least you give the fans what they want instead of having a guy that's in the G League coming to defend this title that played a smattering of games in the NBA be part of this contest. And again, I don't know how to fix it. You can't put the genie back in a bottle. To me, it's a lost cause. And 
when you have a score like you saw last night, and it was inevitable because when you look at the scores of these games over the last, I guess, 10 years or so, they've been in the 160s, 170s, 180s. Maybe even last year was 191, 180. I don't even know what the score was because, again, I don't even watch these games. But, of course, trying to keep my fingers on the pulse to see how it went, whatever. 211 to 186? What's next? The players who scored 200 points in a game? Or even 100 points, a la Will Chamberlain? It's a disgrace. It just really is. And people could say, the young generation could say, Jay Reels, why are you wasting your breath? Stop being the old man. Get off my lawn. It's not basketball. It's an exhibition. It's made to be played this way. Why bother? It's the same for the NFL with the Pro Bowl. Now it's flag football. Seriously, I'm going to watch that? At least Major League Baseball, there is a little bit of integrity. It's not as if these guys are throwing 92-mile fastballs down the middle of the plate where they can just crush them out of sight. Because a lot of those All-Star games are like 4-1, 5-2. They're not even competitive. Those guys want to get in and out. And the NHL All-Star game, what is it, 3-on-3, I believe? So you know it's going to be open ice. It's going to be back and forth. It's going to be a lot of action. Which I get it, the fans want to see, but why even bother? That's my point. And last night it was indicative of that. Nothing more else to be said about it. I'm going to move on, pivot from there. And as we talk about what's happening in the association today, you had, and maybe I spoke this out to the universe on Thursday because after that debacle in Boston there the night before, Wednesday night, where the Celtics just pasted the Brooklyn Nets by 50. And Jacques Vaughn, I get it. Based on that performance, is that a fireable offense? It is. But the Nets, come on. We saw what happened with that team last year, how they disbanded that team. And yes, they have a couple of young players that they could wrap their arms around, whether your name is Mikhail Bridges or even Ben Simmons for that matter, who's been in the lineup as of late. And guys that you could build a team around. And he got jettisoned today, fired as coach of the Nets. I don't even know who the interim is. This happened within the last hour or so. But that is just a tough break for a guy who has been in the NBA as a lifer, player in his early days, of course, played his collegiate ball at Kansas, and then for him to have a chance to be a head coach and to even inherit the team, because remember, Kenny Atkinson was fired when KD and Kyrie was there, and for Jacques Vaughn to then have these two future Hall of Famers on his team, and even James Harden for a handful of games, you would have thought that, all right, Vaughn has a lot to work with, Maybe you could put the Nets, not necessarily on the map, because when you have those two players, you're already on the map. But from a standpoint of being a guy that could be a coach and could coach these big-time talents to heights that the organization has never seen, and when you have those two guys stripped away, and then you have a lot of young talent, and you're still trying to mesh and mold and coach these guys to be not only just professionals, but to be competitive in a night-in-night-out basis, get my words all twisted here, that's where it becomes tricky. And of course, he got the axe, and sadly for him, he is no longer coach of the Brooklyn Nets. So that's been the one newsworthy item that's come out in the NBA here. Because other than that, you're not going to have games until Thursday night. It is going to be rather quiet with a bunch of crickets and who knows what's going to happen here in the coming days leading into Thursday where the schedule will reintroduce itself into our sports consciousness again but 
Yeah, the NBA just had a brutal weekend and then they had the news of a coach being fired. I'm sure that's not a good look for the association here over these last few days. And then I want to get to the Hall of Fame nominees. Now, this hasn't been official yet. These are just a list that have come out. And the two names I'm going to bring up here that are at the top or headlining the upcoming 2024 potential Hall of Fame class because it's not official yet are Vince Carter and Chauncey Billups. And then you have a bunch of coaches and other players that are in the mix as well. But these are the two names that I wanted to bring up here because for me, these are two guys that I understand this day and age, everybody gets into the Hall of Fame. It's not a thing where you're a lock or once you hear that person's name, oh yeah, automatic. There are guys that are getting into the Hall of Fame that to me, and I'm a short room guy, small room, you have to be dominant, you have to be elite. Top of the line, lock. I get it, there are borderlines, and I'm going to start with Vince Carter here as being that borderline guy. And I don't want to hear that he was the greatest dunker of all time, which he was, and arguably is. I'm sure you're going to have a faction of Jordan fans, I'm sure you're going to have a faction of Julius Irving, etc. But Vince Carter, who's had moments in the NBA, absolutely, without question. But when I think about a guy that is going to be elite, dominant, and he did have years of dominance, maybe a four or five year run, never made it to a final, played on a million teams, and I get it, a lot of these players play on several teams. You're not going to have a Tim Duncan or a Kobe Bryant that's going to play one team forever. I get it. But Vince Carter, when you look at his resume, and yes, he does have 25,000 points, which is very lofty, but he played 22 years, because so he's a compiler in my eyes. That's number one. The second thing is, when you look at his resume, it's not about all-star appearances, which he had eight. And he didn't even make it to an NBA final. I don't even think he made it to a conference final in his career. And that does bode for at least consideration to get into the Basketball Hall of Fame. So take that aside, and then you look at his All-NBA, which to me is the barometer. How many All-NBA nods did he get? And you want to look at more first team. All right, I'll give you a second team because that means you're in the top 10 in the league. But when you look at first team All-NBA, when you think of LeBron, when you think of Kobe, when you think of, I'm talking about guys of recent ilk. I won't even go back to Jordan, etc. But you think of the guys, Tim Duncan, guys that were 9, 10, 11 All-NBA first team nods that are slam dunk automatics. You know how many first-team All-NBA nods Vince Carter had? Zero. A big donut. How many second-team All-NBA nods? One. And how many All-NBA third-team nods? The same. One. To me, that doesn't exemplify a Hall of Fame career. Because if you're talking Hall of Fame, and people could say, well, not everybody's Kobe, not everybody's Tim Duncan, not everybody's LeBron, not everybody's this guy, that guy, etc. Dwayne Wade. Well, come on, that's the standard. You want to get into the Hall of Fame, you got to get to those numbers, those lofty heights. You can't just give me a second-team All-NBA, a third-team All-NBA. That's not going to cut it. And the segue to Chauncey Billups. And people could say, well, he won an MVP in the finals, won an NBA championship. All right, that's a good start. He was part of, I believe, six or seven straight conference final teams from his days of Detroit and even Denver. All right, I'll give you that. But even that's not an achievement because to me, 
Conference finals, although that's good, but you got to get NBA finals. Let me get two or three NBA finals. And Bills have been to two NBA finals, as we know, 04 and 05. But for his All-NBA nods, he has one second team and two third-team All-NBA nods. Not one first team. And I don't know how many thousands of points he had. And remember, he was more of a point guard, a traditional, prototypical point guard. Made his other teammates better. Especially on that 4 Piston team with Rasheed Wallace, Ben Wallace, Rip Hamilton, etc. And again, he does have that and the hardware on his mantle. But is he a Hall of Famer? I can name a lot of other MVPs that aren't all Hall of Famers. Andre Iguodala comes to mind right now on that 2015 Warrior team. Is that guy a Hall of Famer? And there are plenty others that go down the list as guys, and we all understand that usually the MVP of a finals, whether your name is Shaquille O'Neal, whether your name is Tim, Tim Duncan, whether your name is Kobe Bryant, LeBron, etc., we get it. Those are the pantheon, the highest of highs. But you do have some that have won finals MVPs that aren't going to be slam dunk automatic Hall of Famers. And I just gave you two in Billups and Andre Iguodala. So, and that's not to, again, that's not to throw cold water or to shame these guys because to call a player who is not a Hall of Famer isn't an insult. It's not. I've said it in baseball, I've said it in NFL, NHL, I've said it in all the sports. And one more time, I'm a small room guy. I'm a guy that when I hear the name, automatic. Or if I have to think about it or debate it, maybe he's not a Hall of Famer, but I could say, you know what, maybe I'll put him in. I have to double check and look at the resume, how many all NFL teams, all NBA teams, MVPs, etc. But when I think Hall of Fame, Vince Carter, I look at him as borderline. And to me, he's out based on that resume. And Chauncey Billups, even with a ring and an MVP in the finals, he doesn't cut it for me. And that may piss some people off. That may say, Jay Reels, you don't know what you're talking about. But again, look at the back of the basketball card. That's what it's about. And even with Vince Carter, with his 25,000 points, which is lofty, he's got to be in the top 15 off the top of my head. But he did it over 22 years. Craig Biggio played 20 years and had 3,000 hits. Or 22 years, I believe. Whatever it was. Is that guy a lock instant Hall of Famer? Granted, he got 3,000 hits and that's the threshold when it comes to Major League Baseball. But never won an MVP. I believe it was top five maybe once in 20 years. Is that a dominant player? That's my point, people. All right, let me pivot here as I go to the college ranks, and we have some interesting news coming out of college here over the last few days. Another top team, this time the number two seeded Purdue, lose to Ohio State yesterday. And as crazy as that was, because this past Wednesday, they fired their head coach, Chris Holtman, and bring in the interim, Jake Diebler, who maybe for one afternoon, a couple of hours, the Buckeyes just rallied the troops to say, hey, maybe we could do something for our new coach to show that the firing of Holtman was maybe a little bit premature. But as it was, they were victorious as the Buckeyes upset the Boilermakers there yesterday afternoon. Not that that's going to put a wrinkle into the Boilermakers' plans for the tournament. You know they're going to be locked in the Final 64. But does that hurt them for a one seed? When it's all said and done, we still have to wait and see how these next few weeks are going to play out. But not a good 
look and a bad loss for a team that again when you have an interim coach coming in and maybe they took them lightly considering the events of the past week for the Buckeyes but Zach Eady and company go down and let's see where they're going to fall they're probably going to drop a spot or two in the rankings I'll take a look at that in a minute where the team ahead of them in UConn they look to be the team to beat here come March 21st when the tournament begins they destroy Marquette in their first matchup, I believe they'll play in the final weekend before we get to the conference championships, the first or second week of March. But for UConn, who beat the number four Marquette team where they blew their doors off. And it was the first time in NCAA history that the point margin, 28 points, was the biggest deficit in a top five conference game in the history of the sport. And that says a lot. Because generally when you have a number one goal up against number four, you would think it's going to be a close game or maybe one team goes away winning to where maybe they win by double digits or they end up blowing them out, but not to the point where it was a 28-point deficit. So Danny Hurley has his Huskies in prime form, ready to, I'm sure, tackle on a back-to-back scenario, which we haven't seen since the 06-07 Florida Gators. Now, again, it's still way too early, but UConn is certainly looking like Every bit of the defending champ that they were last year, this year, looking to defend their title. So that's another thing just to keep in mind as we head toward the stretch of this college basketball season. And then, Rick Pitino. What has gone on with the former Kentucky, former Louisville, former Iona, which I'm sure he's pining for those days to be in New Rochelle as opposed to Queens off the Union Turnpike because he has seen enough of his ball club as they lost to Seton Hall yesterday. They're now 6-9 and nine in the conference. And some of the things that he said were just absolutely mind-boggling. You talk about undressing his team, throwing him overboard and under the bus. He made comments to the likes of calling this season unenjoyable, saying that it's been a highly disappointing year, questioning the team's toughness, something that he hasn't witnessed in all of his years of coaching. Now think about that. His coaching spans back to the mid-80s in Providence and coached a couple of pro teams in the Knicks and the Celtics and the aforementioned teams that I mentioned where he won titles at Louisville, Kentucky, etc. and actually had some success in Iona. But for him to just really tear his team apart, stating how unathletic they are, lacking toughness, the lateral quickness, and we know that Patino teams, they have to be conditioned They have to play 94 feet with that Patino press. And man, for him to call out his team like that, I don't know if he was just trying to wake his team up here over the last two and a half weeks of this college basketball season before we even get into conference championship tournament. And they're on the bubble as we speak. So if he lit the fire, he didn't light it. He napalmed it. So let's see how they respond. Now they played Georgetown on Wednesday, which to me, Georgetown is... Forget about a shell. They are literally a carcass on the side of the road to where they once were. And other than the miraculous run to a Big East championship three years ago with Patrick Ewing at the helm and then getting pasted by Colorado in the opening round of the NCAA tournament, that was the year after COVID, Georgetown has been an absolute non-factor here in Ed Cooley's first year leaving Providence. And I'm sure he's pining for the days of being the coach of the Friars as opposed to being a Hoya coach. But, oh, what a mess down there for Georgetown. And St. John's, I'm sure they're going to beat him by 30. And not that that's going to mean much based on the words by Patino, 
But I guess that's a start, knowing that Georgetown was on the schedule and not UConn, because I'm sure he wasn't going to say that, knowing that the Huskies were going to be on the schedule, because I'm sure UConn would have just done the same to the what they did to Marquette yesterday, as opposed to playing the Red Storm. But that's what you have there with college basketball. Wait, let me get to a couple other things, too. I'll get to the rankings. Of course, I want to talk about Caitlin Clark, who, no shock, got the record the other night eclipsing the all-time scoring record by a women's college basketball player, which was previously held by Kelsey Plum. And she scored it by hitting a three at the logo, ended up scoring 49 points and beating Michigan, and also topped the all-time record for most points in a game by an Iowa, or I believe all-time, whether it was Iowa or even all-time for a college player. I believe it was the school record. So let me not get too far ahead of myself. Let me look here. Yeah, she broke the school record by one point. 48 points was the previous record, and now she has the record all to herself. So kudos to Caitlin Clark. Now, that has to transition for them to get a deep run into the tournament and get back to a Final Four and win the whole thing. Now, I understand it may be daunting with some of the other teams that are out there, but for this to really stick and for her to be among the ranks of one of the greatest women's college basketball players ever, she has to get a title. I talked about that on Thursday prior to her breaking the record. So here it is, what, three, four days later, and my tune stays the same. And also some sad news where you had Lefty Drizel, the one-time college coach, Hall of Famer, known for coaching the Maryland Terrapins, among three other teams, died at the age of 92 over the weekend, had a long life. Lefty Drizel, who had obviously a great career, And thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to the entire college basketball family, Maryland, friends, family, etc. of Drizel as he transitions at the age of 92. And as I get to the rankings here in college basketball, I'll take a quick pick before I get to the NHL. And I got a lot to say about that. That's going to be ugly. So fashion your seatbelts when I get to that, people. As far as the rankings, we know UConn's going to stay there. Let's see, Purdue will probably move down a slot or two. Well, the AP poll hasn't been released yet, but the coaches poll has Purdue at three. Houston's moved up to one. You have Arizona move up. Marquette goes from four to eight. We'll see with the AP poll, and we'll talk about that more on Thursday's podcast. But your top 10 as of right this second with the coaches poll, UConn, Houston, Purdue, Arizona, Tennessee are the top five, followed by Iowa State, Duke, Marquette, North Carolina, and Kansas. That will round out your top 10. We'll see what the AP poll will look like when we reconnect there on Thursday. But that will cover everything that's happening in basketball, both pro and college. Now let me put on my skates and get to the NHL. And this is going to be fascinating. Only because you had your outdoor stadium series over the weekend. Saturday night in New Jersey, MetLife, and Sunday afternoon, same venue where you had the Flyers and Devils meet up. And I'll start there. Devils came out of the gate quick, fastest, or I believe second fastest goal scored in an outdoor game. I don't know if for the trivia heads out there, but Nico Heischer, who had a big game, scored that opening goal, and they pretty much played from in front with 70,000 in tow. Now, the stadium holds 82-5 for a football game, and yesterday, I would think the same for Saturday, in the lower bowl where with the camera angle, if you watch the game, they had the left and right side of the ice sectioned off where off the top of my head, I guess they probably knocked out 
1,500 seats in each section. Maybe that's a little bit too much or somewhere in that vicinity. So you're knocking about anywhere between two to 3,000 seats there. And I don't think it was a sellout just based on that because yesterday the Allen Ranger game had a little shy of 80,000. And being there, I sat four rows from the, not necessarily from the ice because of course the ice is going to be right there in the middle of the field. But if I was at a football game, I was literally four rows from the field, which wasn't a great seat because when you're that low, it's kind of tough to judge where shots are going. And you want to be higher up, but still, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the seats. It was a great time. Shout out to my guy, lifelong Islander fan, John Irving, his nephew, Jimmy, who was great, and his future nephew-in-law, Garrett. They were fantastic. We had a great time. But let me go back to Saturday night. Devils win 6-3, big game by Hishier, as the Devils in their home state, not necessarily in their home stadium, but right across the way many years ago where they played at the old Brendan Byrne Continental Meadowlands Arena. So for those who remember those devil days of yesteryear, I'm sure they took a trip down memory lane when they drove into the parking lot or had to drive past that eyesore of the American Dream Mall on top of the old Meadowlands, which gets swallowed up by that mall. But the Devils win, and a big one for them as they're trying to creep up in the Metropolitan Division. But for the game yesterday... And for those who do or do not know, I'm a huge Islander fan. I go way back with this team to the late 70s, early 80s. And of course, that big cup run dating back from the 80 season through 1983. Drive for five, losing to Edmonton in that fifth, elusive fifth Stanley Cup, which would have matched the Canadiens of yesteryear, going back to the 50s. But be that as it may, you had a scenario where the Islanders and Rangers were playing for the first time. And early on, right out of the gate, about a minute and a half in, the Rangers scored a goal. And you're thinking, oh, geez, this could be a long afternoon, which followed up with a big fight. Matt Rempe, a guy who was 6'7", when I saw him during warm-ups, I was like, geez, who the hell is that guy? Fighting Matt Martin, got the decision, although Rempe had the shield because, of course, every player since, I believe, maybe 20, off the top of my head, I think it's 2014, it's probably been 10 years that every player in the sport has to wear a shield, where Matt Martin, grandfathered in, does not have to wear the shield. And of course, him being the resident tough guy on the Islanders, I'm sure took more shots than he wanted to. And even with the reach, I know Martin told Rempe that his reach is longer than Zdeno Chara. And Chara has two inches on Rempe, when you think about it. But then the Islanders proceeded to score four unanswered goals. They take a 4-1 lead. 3-1 after one, they took a 4-1 lead. The Rangers tacked on two goals, including one late in the second period to make it 4-3. All right, so now the game gets a little dicey as we head into the third period. A minute and a half in, you had Alexander Romanov score the fifth goal for the Islanders to make it 5-3, give him a little bit of a cushion. And now here's where the game goes off the rails. Seven minutes to go, the Islanders, I believe Anders Lee, the captain, penalty. I believe it was a trip or could have been a slash. And now, mind you, the Islander pressure throughout the game, they were peppering Igor Shosturkin, who did not play well. He gave up a bad goal to Bo Bo Horvat. Uh, Romanov's goal, I could get that. And even the tip-in by Matthew Barzal to make it 3-1. But he did not have a good game, and he's actually had a subpar year. I don't know why. I don't know if it's in his head. I know Jonathan Quick, we know his resume dating back from his days with the Kings. Maybe that has something to do with it. But for Shosturkin, who has not had a good year, And with the Islanders having the Rangers on the ropes, 
at seven minutes to go, the Rangers get a goal by Chris Kreider, power play to make it 5-4. And then Scott Mayfield, who had an awful game, three penalties. The last one to me was ticky-tack. And could you call that? I guess you could, but that could have been let go. That wasn't egregious. Not that it has to be egregious, I understand. But all Mayfield was trying to do was trying to jab at the puck where Alexis Lafreniere was coming into the zone. And while he tried to do that, Lafreniere just happened to be in the way of his stick and therefore fell to the ice. Power play goal. Now it's less than four minutes to go in the game. And what happens? Mika Zibanejad off of a just crazy angle and an excellent shot. Give him credit. Ties the game there at five. And now we get to the overtime where if you blinked, the Rangers scored where Artemi Panarin, after the Islanders tried to clear the puck out of the zone, Panarin in front of the Islander net takes a shot and then the defenseman, off the top of my head, I couldn't remember who it was. Everything was happening so fast that I didn't want to even look at the replay because I was sick. I watched the replay in the stadium. But for Panarin to get the shot and the defenseman took the goal off of its moorings and the puck didn't even go by the goal crease. It didn't pass the goal line and go into the net. And I could see if it was done intentionally to where they put the goal off the moorings and then the puck went in, that you have to give them a goal. And I understand that's more of a rule, but that's a rule I do not like. And I'm not saying that because I'm an Islander fan. I could have been a guy that roots for the Ottawa Senators. And if I watched that live, I'd say, wait a minute, that goal should be disallowed. But as it was, it was a good goal. They reviewed it. And the Rangers win. Just a gut punch of a loss to the Islanders who are trying to find their way. They're a bubble team trying to get themselves in wildcard position. And with Patrick Waugh, who has done... I don't want to say he's done a great job here. I mean, the team's been about 500. They blew another third goal or third period lead, as we've seen time after time, even with Lane Lambert as the coach. But that was this one that not only sticks to your ribs as an Islander fan because it's the Rangers, but on top of all that, it sets you back in the division. And that was just, oh, that was rough to take. And not for nothing, can I say this? These Ranger fans are hot stuff. And I understand it's a rivalry back and forth, yada, yada, yada. All right, no problem. But the Ranger fans haven't won a Stanley Cup in 30 years. And I get it, they're in first place. They've now won seven in a row. Give them credit. But what have they done in the last three decades? They're over here chirping like if they won five Stanley Cups. Guys, you need to pipe down. And yes, I understand you're going to be pumped up and you were down 4-1 and 5-3 late in the third period. Okay, great. You want to stick it in our nose? Fine. But for them to just puff their chest out and flex their muscles and just think that they're the superior team, and yes, they are the better team. I'm not going to argue that. I'd be stupid to do so. But with all the chants and all the just nonsense, I think to myself, wait a minute. Where's the hardware on this team? And I understand they brought back a lot of the old Islanders and Rangers. And the biggest applause was Henrik Lundqvist. And Lundqvist, class guy, Hall of Famer, I get it. Made it to a Stanley Cup final and has Vezina trophies. But where are the rings on his finger? They make this guy out to be Patrick Waugh, who was the Islander coach on the bench, who could do all the flexing that he wants as one of the top goaltenders in the history of the sport. Henrik Lundqvist can't say that. Yes, he's a Hall of Famer. And again, I'm not trying to throw ice cold water on him, but come on, people. And it's sad because the Islanders are bringing out the relics, the Dennis Potvins, the Brian Trottiers, and I get it, they're hockey royalty. 
no if ands, buts, babies about it. But it's not as if the Islanders are wheeling out guys in the last decade or at least this century where we could hang our hat on, oh, well, at least we had this guy in the mid-2000s or in the 20-teens. We have nothing. The Rangers are at least wheeling out Lundqvist who played within the last five, six years. Oh, just a mess. Oh, I don't know what else to say. So you had that disaster there. And if there was any silver lining or any just something to cheer about, the NHL All-Star game and the first intermission yesterday was reported that the UBS Arena will get the All-Star game in 2026. Now that will precede the Olympics because the Olympics that year, and I don't know where they're taking place, but I believe it's from February 6th to whatever. So I guess the All-Star break is going to take place maybe two weeks prior to that or maybe maybe even earlier. Now it's going to get swallowed up by the football as we know because with the NFL, even in the wild card round, even if they put it that weekend, the NFL is going to reign supreme as we all know. But at least in this deck of the woods, we'll have an All-Star game in two years where the last time that the Islanders hosted an All-Star game was 1983 where the West, or at that time they were called the Campbell Conference because the East, which is deemed today, was the Wales Conference. They just blitzkrieg Pelly Lindbergh, may he rest in peace, and Wayne Gretzky scored four goals, I believe, en route to an MVP the last time Long Island saw an All-Star game. So they'll get one in two years, which will be great. I don't know if I'm going to attend. As you know, I can't even deal with All-Star games, as I mentioned at the very top of this podcast, but... Who knows? If I'm fortunate enough or just to be able to experience that, I did go to City Field to see the All-Star game when it was played there in 2013. And that was a snooze fest after the first couple of innings, as I've stated on this podcast many moons ago. But at least I have that to look forward to if you're an Islander fan or at least the hockey fan in the tri-state area to have an All-Star game in our backyard for the first time forever. I mean, think about it. The last time it was at the Garden... Maybe it was in the 2000s, but I remember 94 for sure where they had it there. And in the Meadowlands, they may have had it in the 80s. So we're going way back. I think it was the year after it was at the Nassau Coliseum that they had the All-Star game there. So just knowing that there's an All-Star game in this neck of the woods, at least the hockey fan can rejoice and maybe even get an opportunity to see the All-Stars in living color. Break up the Atlantic Division because... Look who's in first place for the first time going back to the, what is it, 2021-22 season, I guess, come to think of it. The Florida Panthers, winners of, I believe, five in a row, and the Bruins, who are in a four-game losing streak, probably the longest that they've had in quite some time, dating back to last year, as we all know about their prolific regular season. But the Panthers are now just a smidge. One point over the Boston Bruins for first place in the Atlanta Division and a stupendous job by them and what they've been able to do. And the Bruins, who I know Milan Lucic was not necessarily acquitted, but he wasn't charged for that domestic violence issue early on in the season, but he's suspended indefinitely by the league, so you're not going to see him at all based on this recent hearing where he has been exonerated. But for the Bruins, I'm sure they're probably relieved with all of the first place that they had to deal with going back to last year. And I understand to call that a relief at this point of the season is a bit of a stretch. But you understand where I'm coming from when we talk about how well they've played dating back to last year and coming out of the gate the way they did this year 
and now they look like they're going to be in a rock fight from here on out to see who gets first place. And again, that's not just first place in the division, but in the entire conference because the Rangers are also hovering there as they're a point behind Florida and tied with Boston for the top seed in the East. So we'll pay attention to that as we move it along. I know the Maple Leafs have been red hot and Austin Matthews, who's coming off of back-to-back hat tricks against Philadelphia and Anaheim, 48 goals. I don't know what his pace is right now. They are currently what? They played 53 games, so they still have, wow, they still have 29 games to go. He's got to be on a pace to Eclipse 70, which very few people have done. Off the top of my head, what, Bernie Nichols, obviously Gretzky, Lemieux, I would think Alexander Ovechkin probably has one 70-goal season under his belt. Brett Hull, Phil Esposito. So you got quite a few players and not many who have reached that plateau. Maybe even Steve Eisenman. I think he had 69 one year. If I didn't mention Mario Lemieux, my apologies. I think I did mention him, but he's on a pace to at least get to 70. So I'm sure it's his MVP to lose this year based on what he's done. Now, Toronto, they're in third place in the Atlantic. So it's not as if they have been running away with a division or playing top-notch hockey here and there or day in and day out. But for Matthews, who is a sniper of all snipers, arguably probably the best sniper in the sport, you would think. I know a lot of people think Nathan McKinnon, maybe even Kirill Kaprizov in Minnesota. I get it. There's a faction in Edmonton will say, hey, what about Connor McDavid? He's more of an all-round player. He's more of a playmaker, although he can tally the goals, as we've seen, without question. But when you talk about bonafide sniper, Austin Matthews has got to be the first guy that comes to mind, even with those aforementioned players at the very top of that list. And then out west, you have a good game today, Dallas and Boston. I understand by the time this podcast comes out, the game will be over, but Dallas and Boston, a good matchup there in an afternoon tilt because of the president's holiday. So we'll see how that shakes down as the Stars have a three-point lead over the Avalanche and a four-point lead over Winnipeg in the Central. And in Vancouver, we talked about how they've been playing well. They currently have a 12-point lead over the Vegas Golden Knights and the Knights have a three-point lead over Edmonton in the Pacific. And that's pretty much your NHL here as we tidy that up and move on to other things as I unlace my skates. And I'll kind of go rapid fire here with a few things. I'm going to start off with the baseball. So let me get in the batter's box to discuss that because over the weekend, I know Pete Alonso had made some comments, meaning that he's reported to Metcamp, I guess a day or two early before everybody reports. And I know some players have reported today where on Valentine's Day, pitchers and catchers reported and usually five days after that, that's when you have the position players come in and you still have some coming in, whether it's today or even tomorrow, based on when the players were to report, considering that the pitchers and catchers, five days after they report, whether it's the 14th or 15th, so you get my drift. But for Alonzo to come out and say that he wants to be a lifelong Met, and he has said all the right things over the years, LFGM in the postgame, how much he wants to be a part of this organization, this team, etc. He loves the guys, so on and so forth. But here he is. He's about to go into a walk year, where if he even bats 270, you already know what the output is going to be offensively. Last year, he batted, what, 210, 218, somewhere in the 210s, and he still put up 46 and about 115. So if he bats 270, he's probably going to put up those same numbers or even more. And 
with all the money that's been thrown around, maybe not this offseason, to guys like Cody Bellinger or even a guy like Matt Chapman. Forget about the pitchers. Put Blake Snell and Jordan Montgomery aside. But for Pete Alonso, I'm sure he's going to make this season his own personal vendetta. And it starts with the owner, first and foremost. And I don't want to hear about David Stearns, who I'm down on. I don't want to even go into David Stearns right this very second, who's even come out to say that the likelihood of signing Alonzo before the start of the year was very unlikely. Pretty much giving Alonzo the pep talk, like, hey, go out there, have a kick-butt year, and we'll see where the chips fall after the season. David Stearns, come on, you're flirting with danger if you do that. And Steve Cohen, this is his call. This is going to be similar to Aaron Judge two years ago when Hal Steinbrenner on a trip to Italy had to pick up the phone to call Aaron Judge to say, what is the price? Let me know what you want and we got you. We'll sign you on the dotted line. Steve Cohen's going to have to do that. So David Stearns just stay out of the way. And now it is to you, Steve Cohen. For all that talk after all the trades last year and going into 2024 as being a competitive year, that will go into 2025, ready to go, will do our best to get that World Series team up and coming and on the go where this year was going to be that, I don't want to say a touch and go year, but certainly gave them the safety net to not have to go after the big player or the sexy addition to the team and just kind of play it out with these small moves and the Joey Wendells of the world and the Sean Manias and players like that where we're going to piecemeal it together, where we're going to have more of a closer-knit team. And yes, we will still have Pete Alonso. We will still have Francisco Lindor. We're going to have Brandon Nimmo and Jeff McNeil. And all right, we'll have all these little guys. All right, fine. So we're going to be almost like the little engine that could to where the year before we were the evil empire. Well, Steve Cohen, you also talked about sharing the same blueprint of the Dodgers and the Braves. And the Dodgers, obviously, they spend big money, and we get it. You weren't going to follow that blueprint. All right, fine. Understood. But the Braves, the Braves have made their small moves. They brought in Jared Kalenic. They've traded guys like Mike Soroka and even Kyle Wright, who was a 21-game winner, to other teams. And yes, they have kept their homegrown talent. Whether that's signing Austin Riley to a 10-year, $212 million deal, which looks like a bargain right now Ronald Acuna Jr. many years ago 8 for 100 you talk about bargain the guy just came off of an MVP you bring in a guy like Matt Olson, where you say goodbye to Freddie Freeman we're not going to pay you he comes in signs an 8 year $168 million deal what does he do he puts up 53 home runs last year and now you want to be able to follow those footsteps for a team in your own division that has made these moves that have kept their players and you're not willing to hammer out a deal. I get it. Scott Boris is the guy you got to deal with, the agent of Pete Alonso. But guess what? After this year where Max Scherzer, Justin Verlander comes off the books and you'll have one more year with Starling Marte and a couple other guys, yes, you are paying Francisco Lindor. Yes, you are paying Kodai Senga $15 million a year, I might add. So it's not as if you're breaking the bank for a guy like that. You have plenty of payroll. So all the deep pockets that you have and you've flexed and talked about since you became the owner of the team and now that you've tempered it a little bit going into this year, well, guess what? You got to start paying the big bucks. Homegrown guy, the guy's going to break all the Met records. 
a guy who could be another retired number in the rafters of City Field when it's all said and done. I understand he's not Daryl Strawberry where he has that appeal of a guy that's going to be a lightning rod to your team. But then again, he's not Dave Kingman either. Although his 210-215 batting average last year is resembles that. I get it. But here's a guy that could be the face of your franchise for the next six, eight, however many years. Because Lindor, let's face it, he was a guy that was brought in and they had to bring him in, I understand. But he isn't the guy that's the leader of your team. It's Alonzo. And if you don't sign this guy on a dotted line at any point, but even especially before opening day for all the things that you've said about wanting to be like the Braves and be like other teams to have those guys in your lineup day in, day out for years to come, put up or shut up. That is it. Then you had a couple of signings here over the last couple of days where Whit Merrifield signed a one-year deal with the Phillies, and that's a very good deal. He's a guy that provides speed, led the American League and hits one year for the Royals, good utility player, one year, $8 million. To me, that was an excellent signing. So kudos to them. He could play all the infield positions, very versatile. Like I mentioned, the speed, steals bases. Just a good... I don't want to say he's a glue guy, but a good guy to have on your team. So that was an upgrade for them. And then Liam Hendrick, the former closer, Hendricks, the former closer of the A's, just recently the White Sox had to overcome non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, signed a two-year deal with the Red Sox. So he's going to go in there with Kenley Jansen. I'm sure he's not going to be a ninth inning guy, but he does provide more depth in that bullpen. I believe Chris Martin, the lefty, is still there. So even though they're... Starting rotation is in shambles, but at least the 7th, 8th, and ninth innings are set up for them to at least maybe close a game or be in a game, etc. So give it up for the Red Sox to make that deal, but I'm sure that's one that the Red Sox Nation just thumbed their nose up like, oh, this is our big offseason acquisition. They didn't resign Justin Turner as he went north of the board, and he had a very good year for the Red Sox, but they're going to bring in Liam Hendricks, a guy, I believe he's, what, 35 years old and has had to go through a lot of struggles with his health and has overcome that thank god but i'm sure if you're a red sox fan you kind of clap rather lightly instead of saying all right now our bullpen is solidified let's go let's start off opening day as if it was in five minutes but uh, i tell you that's what we have there with the baseball as we're just a few days away i believe saturday the spring training exhibition schedule begins so for those who are into that not me but at least we could see what's going to happen in these games and players get hurt and things of that nature. So we have that to chew on if you're into just exhibition baseball. And now let me get to a few quickies here before I bid adieu. You had golf over the weekend, the Genesis Invitational out in LA. And that was a weird weekend because you had Tiger who started off pretty well, although he faltered there toward the end, shot a 72 and then had to exit. First, we thought it was back and then found out later that he had some flu-like symptoms, so he had to leave after two rounds. So Tiger, who we wanted to see, maybe this was a bit of a jump start for a tune-up to Augusta, which is about six weeks, I believe, from this coming Thursday, maybe seven weeks off the top of my head. So for Tiger, unsuccessful, couldn't make it through a full tournament there. So that was not good news if you're a Tiger fan, or even golf for that matter, because again, when you have no John Rahm, Dustin Johnson, all the top players in the sport, you're going to have... I'm not going to say slim pickings, but when you have Tiger go out, and let's face it, Tiger's body's betraying him 
whether it's his back, whether it's his knee, whether it's his leg, the ankle with the car accident, which is almost, what, three years to the day? And we understand he still may have that fire in his belly and in his heart, but his body's saying, "Uh uh-uh, you've done too much with his body over the years that we can't even handle walking up and down a golf course for four rounds. So I don't want to say it's the end of Tiger, but let's face it. The dominant, the efficient, the healthy Tiger, I believe, is a thing of the past. And for then Jordan Spieth to screw up his scorecard where he got DQ'd, and I understand human error that can happen, but in this day and age with our devices and technology and a digital, digital, let me see if I say this right, a, I was going to say a digitized, not digitalized, oh geez, get my words here correct, a digitized world that we live in that he couldn't keep score of his second round or I believe it was his third round where he got disqualified and just walked off the course. Now, I don't know, did Spieth had enough? Was he saying that, uh-uh, I don't want to even be here anymore? Maybe that was his way to check out? I don't know. Now, of course, don't quote me on that. But for Spieth to now leave, I'm sure that didn't do well for the golf fan knowing that you had no Tiger, no Spieth, and the aforementioned guys that are in live. And then you had Hideki Matsuyama, who at least put up a 62 yesterday in his final round to win the Genesis Invitational, which... Obviously very impressive, a guy who has won major tournaments in the past, I believe, off the top of my head, didn't he win the 2018 Masters? I believe that's the case, or one of the majors as we know, but I get it, the average golf fan is not going to gravitate to Matsuyama in the least, but the golf fan at least are going to appreciate that, so Matsuyama is your winner there at the Genesis yesterday as we're still... More than a month and a half or somewhere around there before we get the first major in, and that's in Augusta, as we all know. A tradition unlike any other there with the Masters. And then you had the Daytona 500, which was postponed to today at 4 o'clock. And I'm not a racing guy. We understand it's the Super Bowl of racing, but this has to put a damper on it, no pun intended, with the inclement weather yesterday at the Daytona 500. But as I mentioned on Thursday, I couldn't even tell you who's the favorite. I couldn't tell you who's... A dark horse who's a guy that's laying in the weeds. Uh Uh-uh. I don't follow racing. It's not my thing. I may talk a little bit of Indianapolis 500 in the latter part of May, right there, that Sunday before Memorial Day, because it does have a bit of a place in my heart dating back to me as a child. But as far as the Daytona 500, absolutely not. And they're going to start at 4 p.m. today. I'm sure for the diehard racing fan, they're going to be all on top of it. And kudos to them. God bless you guys and gals. Fantastic. But for this guy, uh uh-uh. I get it that yesterday with whatever the start time would have been, I guess at noon, whatever, but again, I will see who's going to win, but am I going to follow this lap by lap by lap? Absolutely not. And then to wrap up, I know you had a fight there on Saturday with the MMA where you had a shocker, Ilya Tapuria, who stunned Alexander Volkanovsky with a knockout. I didn't watch it. I can't really give you a full take on it. But the only reason why I bring it up because I guess it was a surprise to think that Volkanovsky was a guy that maybe came in as a favorite. And I don't know where his rank is as far as him being at the top of his weight class or a guy that was dominant or a guy that was up and coming. Who knows? But for Tapuria to put him on the canvas there in the octagon, I'm sure that came to a shock of a lot of the MMA UFC fans. Where does this lead? I'm sure probably to a rematch at some point. 
And I don't know where Tapuria is on the landscape there as far as his class goes, but that's something I had to bring up considering based on what I saw there Saturday night. I said, hey, maybe this is something I need to bring up to the MMA fan. I understand that this is just not even a, it's just a nugget. I'm not giving you a full analysis of the fight, what happened, how many times he struck. Was Volkanovski leading in the fight at that time? I couldn't even tell you it was the first, second round. And that's a bad job on my part because I just saw the highlight. But nevertheless, maybe this is something that we'll have to, or I'll have to pay attention to moving forward, whether or not they do meet up at some point in the near future or in the not-too-distant future. And for me to really keep an eye on the next matchup, because you know there's going to be another one that has to be. And if Volkanovski comes out on top, I'm sure there'll be a trilogy to see who gets the rubber match of that three if Volkanovski were to win. So you have that to chew on, MMA fans, as... Your boy here will have his radar up for a rematch at some point down the line. And that'll do it, my good people. Another episode just about in the books. Thank you so much for stopping by. For those who are visually inclined watching this on YouTube, I know different setup here today, but it doesn't matter. It's all good. I could be on a rooftop. As long as the wind isn't swirling, it doesn't matter because video is going to be a part of this moving forward. As you all know, content creator is my title. Full-time doing this, what I love, and I'm just supremely grateful, thankful, blessed to do this, to share this with you guys and gals on a week-in, week-out basis, twice a week, every Monday and Thursday. Of course, subscribe to my YouTube channel, at JReels. It'll go a long way to increasing the visibility of that channel, as well as the podcast on the aforementioned platforms, whether it was Apple, Spotify, that you heard at the very top. Of course, you want to hit me up with a question, comment, or even a suggestion, you could do so at the following, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, the J Reels Podcast, Twitter, X J Reels, one just the number, and the old fashioned way, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to talk about, people. It's in the blood, it's in the DNA, as I like to say. If you couldn't tell over the past hour, then I don't know. I got to ratchet up even more, or maybe you got to crank up the volume. Who knows? Because the fire, passion, fury, energy will not let up. I will not relent. Because I love to share my thoughts, opinions, critiques, praise, analysis, feelings on anything and everything. That happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. For the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Center, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast... On the flip, baby.